IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we review the new album by Kendrick Lamar. My name is Stephen Hyden and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, the big stepper to my Mr. Morale, Ian Cohen. <laughs> Ian, how are you? You know, I, I like the joke you made uh, a few days ago about prepping in one week anniversary piece for the new Kendrick Lamar album because, <laughs> I mean, like it, you know, like most of the things we talk about on this uh, show, it has come to pass. I feel like the cycle of hype for this uh, joint has spun art like twice in the past five days alone. Like, I think we like actually should re-review Kendrick Lamar's album every single week, you know, because right now I think it's in that kind of valley of, you know, there it was it had like a perfect score on Metacritic over the weekend after like 10 reviews. And now people are starting to kind of like fight back against that. There have been some uh, lukewarm to positive reviews. And now maybe people thinking it's underappreciated. So who knows where the who knows where the big dial is going to land by next week? Yeah, you know, the, the part of the discourse about this album, along with just talking about the music itself, was people saying that you can't review this album after only a day or two of listening to it. Yeah, I, I think Stereogum had a review up the day it came out. From, from what I could tell, Tom Bryan lit, like woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning and like listened to the, the album for like 10 straight hours and then published. Like I'm not, yeah, I'm I mean, not even kidding. You know, there's people rebelling against that idea, especially in the case of someone like Kendrick Lamar, who, and we'll get to this later on our episode, there is not an artist on the planet that people take more seriously than Kendrick Lamar. No. And it's interesting how that has bled into his actual music, because on this album, there's a palpable anxiety on Kendrick's part about how seriously people take him. And in some respect, I feel like he's completely gotten lost in his own head at this point it, which which can be an interesting thing for an artist and also obviously uh detrimental but yeah you know, i just have to say obviously it'd be ideal if an album like this comes out that you could spend a week or two listening to it and then publishing reviews but to quote hyman roth in the godfather <laughs> part two this is the business we've chosen you know yeah people want to read about a record when it comes out and if you wait too long to put out a review people don't read it. Yeah. And the thing about a review is that it's not court testimony. Yeah. You know, you're not testifying before Congress. If you give an opinion that six months later you don't agree with, no one's going to persecute you uh, or prosecute you for perjury. You know? Yeah. Uh, we're calling balls and strikes here. Yeah. You know, in the moment, things don't always pan out the way that they're going to maybe ultimately be talked about. So, you know... History will change no matter what, even if you waited a week or two. Yeah. Those reviews you might regret as well. So, you know, it's just the way it is. It's the business we've chosen. And, you know, like, uh, I like the idea of music critic perjury. It's like, is it true, Mr. Cohen, <laughs> that you gave Dark Side Psychic a 9.0 or whatever, you know? Um, but I, <laughs> I, I just like that idea of, like, us having to be held into account for, like, you know, completely objective things. But, I mean, what I wonder about this album is how, and this often does happen because, you know, the narrative is all-consuming, is that Kendrick being so challenging and confrontational is going to lead into how people view the Harry Styles album. I know this, oh. like, I know this is like Galaxy Brain 4D terminally online brainworm shit, but, like, I wouldn't say it if there wasn't some truth in it because, I mean, that was kind of the... That, that was kind of the crux of your argument against the new Harry Styles album, which does come out on Friday. We will not hash out that album in depth, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. you haven't heard the album. You you probably will never hear the album. Yeah. If, if you have anything to do with it, unless you're, uh, yeah, like at a CBS or Walgreens yeah. and uh, they're, they're playing deep cuts from this record. Yeah, the new Harry Styles record is out today, Harry's House. And like in your galaxy brain theory here, are you saying that Harry's House will be hurt or helped? Uh I say the Kendrick Lamar. I say help because like the sort of people who um, praise Harry Styles is like you know what like the prime example of like what a male pop star should be in 2022 will look at 
you know, Kendrick Lamar's views about, you know, sexuality and gender and, you know, trans people or whatever. And like Harry Styles made all the right moves on that front. Like he is being held up as like the epitomization of like what we were hoping to get uh, from, you know, a dominant male pop star, which I think you talk about in your review as well. It's like he plays the role. It's like he he is fully embodying that role. Yeah, he is, uh, his job basically is to be the perfect boyfriend, <laughs> the perfect friend, the, you know, the, the perfect sensitive male a- ally yeah. who, like, doesn't have any uh, untoward or uh, selfish impulses, mm-hmm. always says the right thing. He's going to be buying you flowers. He's going to be complimenting <laughs> you on your yoga, uh, you know, how it's keeping you fit. Yeah, I mean... I could see it going that way. I could also see people listening to the Kendrick Lamar record and being like, this is a difficult record. Mm. I don't know if it's fully successful, but at least it's uh, it has an artistic uh, ambition to it that makes a record like Harry's House look completely bland. Well, I, I mean, I think Harry's House looks bland anyway. Yeah. I mean, I wrote this review. I thought it was funny because my review was pretty... Uh, it was pretty harsh. That the headline was Harry Styles is a really nice guy who makes boring music, <laughs> which which I think sums him up perfectly. Right. Um, and immediately, all my replies were, "R.I.P. Your mentions. The stands are coming after you today." And I have to say that most of the replies I got were people saying that. I didn't get a ton of negative <laughs> fan response. I think his fan base, huh. at least based on the reaction to this review, is like pretty cool. You know, they don't seem like they're out to get people, mm-hmm. which I guess is the nice part of Harry Styles' treat people with kindness credo. And again, he seems like a really nice guy mm-hmm. and all that. I just, I do find it funny how he's discussed sometimes mm-hmm. because he wears dresses on stage. Yeah. As, like he's like this transgressive paradigm shifter. Yeah. When, when you listen to his records, <laughs> I really feel like they're indiscernible from like what Ed Sheeran does. Yeah. You know, if anything, you know, look, you could take shots at Ed Sheeran. I think he's a good pop songwriter. You know, he knows what he's, what he's doing. Mm -hmm. He's written songs that aren't my personal taste, but I can recognize the craft in them. I would say that he's a better craftsman Mm. than Harry Styles, but he looks like Ed Sheeran. Yeah. (laughs) So he doesn't have, he doesn't get the kind of, um, attention from the media mm-hmm. that Harry Styles gets. It just seems out of whack with what his actual music is. I think his persona and his music, it doesn't line up. Yeah, I mean, with Harry Styles, it's like, you know, he, he's an objectively beautiful man who wears an occasional dress, and he's dating Olivia Wilde, right? Or something like that, and, you know... It's, Ted Lasso's estranged yeah. wife. And so, like, I, I love how people are like, yes, like, for all of these things, this is exactly like Prince or David Bowie to me. I mean, I actually watch... As I'm, t- as I tend to do, uh, Smashing Pumpkins videos from uh, like the Adora era, and like Billy Corgan was like, you know, it, it, like his style at that time to me seems far more uh, transgressive as to like what you know traditional ideas of like male rock star should be, and I think Ed Sheeran kind of does as well because I mean, you know, he's out there with like his tattoos and his red hair and just kind of looks like a dude from Lord of the Rings. I mean, like a guy like that singing a a song like shape of you, you know, I think you touched on like why it's received, but in some circles so negatively, it's because, you know, you have to think about Ed Sheeran naked. Uh, And, you know, and and he, and he's just, he is an untraditionally, he's, he's, he has an untraditional look for a rock star. He just plays the part of like the geeky pop star, like so well, you know, and it's such an easy target. Uh, to take shots at. You know, you mentioned Smashing Pumpkins. Can I just give a shout out to James Eha in the Today video? Oh, yeah. He looks amazing in a dress. Yeah. He looks amazing uh, in a dress. J- James in that is a video. very beautiful man as well. So. He's a very beautiful man. Yeah. And uh, still, he's a beautiful, any, kind of, any kind of gender or non binary, whatever kind of uh, identity that he would have, he would be beautiful. Yes. James Eha. He looks amazing in a dress uh, in, in there. So, uh, anyway, I, I just think it's. Again, I keep saying I think it's funny, but I but I do think it's funny yeah. that he gets all this praise for something that straight white males have done for like a half a century. Yeah, <laughs> wearing yeah. dresses. I don't Pop, know. Optimus anyway. thirst, man. It's 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 rough out there. I you know one thing I will say in Harry Styles' defense is that uh, the first single that he released from this record had people talking up like the drums or like Bombay Bicycle Club, and you know what, like. 
if that can't win me over, I'm not sure what will. I mean, to me, it just sounds like his version of Blinding Lights, like the weekend song. Uh, yeah. You know, to me, it has a similar vibe to that. And I think Blinding Lights is a better song, although, as it was, is like by far the best song on that record. Yeah. Right. I'll say. I think it's a pretty catchy song. So Harry Styles does not have the full-throated IndyCast endorsement. You know, we'll we'll see how this plays out in his career. So do we want to talk about that Rolling Stone Taylor Hawkins story? Yeah. Uh, that came out this week? Yeah. Because uh, Rolling Stone, they read a story. It was called The Final Days of Taylor Hawkins. And it doubles as a tribute to Taylor Hawkins. There's a lot of people talking about him and the story and, and, and like what a nice guy he is. But the other part of the story is speculating or I don't know if that's the right word, yeah. but it's talking about how he died essentially. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most of the talk after his death was talking, it was alluding to drugs being in his system. It was, it, it, there's still not a cause of death that's been given no. officially. For, for him, but it was suggested that it was drug related. Mm. And in the Rolling Stone piece, people like Matt Cameron of Pearl Jam and Chad Smith of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, both of whom were close friends with Taylor Hawkins, they say that Taylor Hawkins, in the months before his death, was talking about feeling tired. Mm-hmm. Apparently, he had an enlarged heart. Yeah. Um, so there was some sort of heart condition going on and, and just him talking about how difficult it is to be in your fifties and to play three hour shows yeah. and play these like high, high energy Foo Fighter songs. And I think a lot of people read that story and felt that, cause even though the story doesn't do this explicitly, it seems like it's, you know, I don't know if blame is the right word, uh. but certainly pointing in the direction of the Foo Fighters yeah, and and like whether you know they didn't listen to him because apparently, like Grohl and uh, uh, Hawkins had like a talk about this, mm-hmm. and again, this is according to Cameron and Smith. We should say yeah. too that Cameron and Smith came out later, and they said that they that their quotes were taken out of context, and that they didn't, and they regretted being part of this story. Yeah, we we said stuff, and then it was shaped into a narrative, which is like totally not what we expected of uh, you know music journalism. Like, how dare they? I mean, like, yeah. Well, when I saw I saw people talking about this, they're saying, "Oh, Cameron and Smith were saying they were misquoted," and they didn't say that. No. They did not. This is what they it's what they say. Like in all the president's men, the famous the the non denial denial. <laughs> I mean, that's what these statements were. It wasn't saying I never said this. You know, they're making this up. It is I didn't know that the story would come out this way. Yeah, which and <laughs> so it's hard to know what to think yeah. in the wake of that. Um, I don't know. Like, what are your? Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, on this? I mean, I think I don't know. Maybe in general, people like people are obviously shocked and saddened. I mean, we've talked about this in previous episodes. How the outpouring of emotion for Taylor Hawkins, and you know, it's a tragedy. And also, I think that people in their grief are trying to find some sort of target, and you know, perhaps maybe find a crack in the veneer of Dave Grohl's or Foo Fighters Inks. Uh, you know, public facing persona. And you know what, like for me, like what happened here probably is that, you know, and I want to just give a shout out to like Rolling, the people at Rolling Stone who put this together. I mean, like when people talk about like music journalism, like this to me is music journalism. Too often people are like, uh, you know, the music journalism field is dying and it's like, oh, a couple, like they'll talk about like doing the capsule reviews, but you know, they had the ability to get Matt Cameron and Chad Smith on the record and, do all this research and vet it. And I imagine someone's manager talked to someone's lawyer or someone's lawyer talked to someone's manager. And, you know, they just didn't want to like open themselves up to liability. Um, And, you know, I think that the denial of this, I don't know if it makes things seem a little more, uh, uh, you know, a little more sketchy, but, you know, look at the end of the day, um, they had a talk and, you know, anyone who goes on tour will probably have a conversation. It's like, man, I don't know if I can do this. Um, you know, any like it sucks to go on tour physically, mentally, emotionally. Most people will say that. And, you know, this doesn't to me strike as being similar to like what you see in college football where like this 18 year old offensive lineman is practicing like two a days in 100 degree heat. And, you know, like they're doing it like with these voluntary, quote unquote, mandatory practices. Um 
it just seems to me like a fucking horrible tragedy and um you know we're just trying to find someone to blame for it yeah that's my thought as well here i feel like this is especially like a social media i think phenomenon yeah. that whenever something like this gets put into the meat grinder of conversation that people immediately just want to put it into a binary situation yeah. where oh t- taylor hawkins was maybe maybe he had health problems and like oh they made him tour and it's their fault that this happened and that wasn't my take from reading the story i i think that there's a lot of you know it's real life it's complicated it's nuanced you know like you said it's a horrible tragedy this you know he was 50 years old you know he he was so full of life It's, it's such a shame that it ended up this way I mean, it's nobody's fault. I, you know, like, like Taylor Hawkins, he made a decision that he was going to go on the road. You know, if he didn't want to go on the road, he could have made that decision to not do it, you know. Mm. But he did, and I'm sure there was no way to foresee something no. like this happening. You no. know, it's it's like how many tours have they done? Yeah. You know, how many shows have they played? Mm. You would never think that a guy that young would, would, would perish like this. So... I, to me, like I appreciated the story because I think it just gives some more nuance to it. Again, you know, people were talking about this in the context of drugs. Yeah, you know, his passing, and to me, this gives a little bit more background. Mm-hmm. That okay, well, maybe it wasn't that simple. No. You know, maybe there were other factors coming into play, and you know, and again, I I do think that the story does do a good job of paying tribute to him. Yes, and and just talking about the kind of reach that he had, and that got overshadowed, I think, a little bit by the conversation about you know, sort of like what happened to him at the end of his life. But, um, yeah, again, shout out to the Rolling Stone people. Yeah. I think they did a good job with the piece. And, you know, when, when famous people say I was taken out of context yeah. and they throw journalists under the bus yeah. with that, you know, I, I, I guess I have some sympathy for the journalists <laughs> on that side because I'm closer to that. Although, I mean, I understand you know, the regret probably that Cameron and Smith yeah. had when they read that story. Yeah. I can see their perspective too. Um, I mean, I was really surprised that they went on the record yeah, seriously. and said what they said. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, and that just kind of shows you why it's so hard to get actual people like, you know, to speak on the record and stuff. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what context there would be to change the nature of those quotes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like what's the, I mean, they're pretty, tough quotes and there's they're also in the story talking about how much they loved him and and what a great guy he was so it wasn't it wasn't just them talking about that but anyway yeah before we get to our mailbag should we talk about (laughs) this billboard music awards uh like the okay i didn't watch this nor did i it's the the billboard music awards but this sounds like the weirdest award show (laughs) angle that i've heard of in a long time like 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 uh Diddy, I guess he was the executive producer. Was he also the host? He first, yeah, he was the host and executive producer. Now, mind you, we are just going off the news stories that were written about the Billboard Music Awards. This is yeah, like I mean, secondhand. This is secondhand material right here. Yeah, because like it's like Billboard Music Awards, and this is like the bottom of the barrel. Yeah, for musical. I mean, they they basically just hand a trophy to anyone that shows up. Yeah, and it, it's and it's honoring. It's just like pure popularity the show yeah they don't even like there's not even an ounce of like artistic merit that that goes into uh picking the winners of this but the theme this year was uncanceling the canceled i don't know if this was the theme but it was like definitely the only part that people would mention after the fact so like but, but, but like diddy literally said that right yeah Didn't he say like we're gonna uncancel the canceled yes um, one, and I'm going to quote here. One of the things I'm doing, and I'm sure Diddy's people will tell us that, you know, his quotes have been taken out of context. Um, <laughs> one of the things I'm doing directly is uncanceling the canceled. That's breaking news because people haven't been about uncanceling, but canceling is a trend that needs to stop. So, um, apparently what this meant was bringing out Morgan Wallen and Travis Scott. And there was apparently a Michael Jackson tribute. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah, so so those are the three that were chosen. Now, Morgan Wallen yeah. um, is probably, in spite of the controversy around him, he's, I think, still probably the most popular country artist right now in America. He's certainly the best-selling. Yeah, he, he got, like, 
bigger after i don't think there was like a direct correlation between like him get like he you know he was caught saying the n-word and like when he was drunk on video and uh you know he, he his 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 record sales have not been harmed in the least but like you know maybe he won't be honored at the country music awards or something like that but you know self-forced like unforced error like that is to me like an example of you know what people maybe talk about with quote-unquote cancellation like with travis scott i i could see why diddy would include him you know like diddy uh back like when he was first getting started you know his like he put on a like a, ba- a charity basketball game that ended in tragedy like people got trampled and so you know that was supposedly like a career ender for him so i can imagine is travis scott canceled though that's a good yeah I, I never got the impression necessarily <laughs> that i mean certainly people i mean if anything i feel like people moved on fairly quickly from Astroworld. Like, it was, it, yeah, to a degree, which is kind of frightening. I, I think it was yeah, just like... Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, like, like, what are the consequences of that, really? I I don't feel like there was a great reckoning against Travis Scott, especially among people who actually, like, listen to Travis Scott. I didn't get the impression that there was a big push to cancel him. Yeah. And I, so that seems kind of weird to me. And then you get Michael Jackson... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Can you uncancel the dead? I mean, <laughs> yeah, he, he's he's been uh, he died like 13 years ago, so he's been gone for a while. Um, and <laughs> I mean, it's just like the range of offenses here, where you have the Morgan Wallen getting caught, yeah, using a racial epithet on video, which is terrible. Yeah, but I would I would say that Michael Jackson being accused of, uh, you know pedophilia yeah. on but for multiple people yeah l- is a, over is a the lot span worse. of decades and so forth yeah, and more to the, a lot worse yeah and, <laughs> and then yeah just travis scott in there i mean like it was more like with travis scott like hey maybe he should lay low for a while um you know right so uh, which seems like you know yeah maybe i don't feel like that's cancel cancelization if if you're having uh you know, so many people who died at your concert. Yeah, I, I just, th- uh, it's just fascinating. Is that really an inconvenience to like lay low? Yeah, I, I mean, it's getting us to talk about the Billboard Music Awards. Yeah. So, you know, maybe Diddy was onto something there. Yeah. Uh, but, well, yeah, that that was so bizarre. Yeah, it's, it's actually kind of crazy because like, uh, you would think that like something like this would be top line banter, but I don't even, like this was actually a kind of under the radar compared to like, you know, we, there were stories about the NYC, like, subway shooter becoming friends with R. Kelly in jail and the Kendrick album talking about cancel culture and even Neil Patrick Harris apologizing for having, like, a meat tray at his birthday that looked like Amy Winehouse back in 2011. He apologized. Yeah, it was, like, right after she died. Yeah, he had a meat platter that looked like Amy Winehouse's that, corpse. And it said, apparently, right next to it, Amy Winehouse's corpse or something like that. Like, he, he, if and, it, as if it were not obvious enough. So, I mean. And, like it, and that just surfaced because someone tweeted about it. It's like, we don't talk about this yeah. enough. It's like, well, what is the appropriate amount to talk about Neil Patrick Harris's meat platter from 2011? Uh, yeah. You know, But it did get him to apologize. Yeah, a crazy yes. week. Let's get to our mailbag segment. Thank you all for writing in. Always great to hear from our listeners. We're at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. Ian, do you want to read this letter? Yes, I do. So, um, hey, Steve and Ian. My name is Ian Cruz from Detroit. Hey, Ian. Um, You guys write about musicians, but do you by chance play music? Have you ever Mm -hmm. been in a band? And if so, what was it called? What did you play? On that same note, is it better to be a musician when writing music journalism, or is it best that you have no clue about writing a song so you leave any bias at the door? Thanks, Ian. Detroit me. That's that's a Homestar Runner reference for everyone. I just put that in there for kicks. So I feel like this has come up a lot when people talk about music writing. I mean, do you? Because I feel like I've heard this many times. Like, oh, are you a musician? You know. How can you write about music if you don't play music yourself? Mm. Um, which, by the way, I've never been in a band personally. Mm. I have played drums okay. with my friends. Yeah. And uh, I've dabbled in writing lyrics. Not mm. full-fledged songs. I'm more like a Bernie Toppin, <laughs> Robert Hunter type. Looking for a band to, to, you know, to take my lyrics and turn them into songs. Uh, <laughs> but I've never been in a band. I, I know enough about playing music to know that 
being a bad musician is a lot more fun than being a good musician. <laughs> like getting together with your friends, drinking some beers and just making noise yeah. is a blast. But like having to rehearse and to play in tune, <laughs> to play shows, it, it's like hard work. Yeah. And I, so, so yeah, I've been a, a recreational musician in the past. Mm. Have you, have you played music at all? Yeah. I mean, you know, I have like in the office where I'm recording this episode, I have like four guitars. I have like two electrics, one acoustic and one baritone. They're all in different tunings. And, you know, like I'll play stuff that sounds, I guess like Alex G in that it's like, you know, kind of this pretty jangly chord progression for five minutes straight. Um, my wife is actually like a really phenomenally talented singer. So like we just started getting into the point where we can do covers, maybe open for some uh. of our friends band, but this is like very preliminary stages. You guys I'll, can be like she and him. Yes, we can be exactly like she and him. <laughs> You'll be the new she and him. We're, we're going to be, we're just going to do, but except for doing, I, I just love how they put out something. It's like, this is their first non Christmas album in eight years. Um, but yeah, I think to your point about, um, you know, being, I've never been in an actual like practicing playing band. Like I, 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 I just have to cop to this. So, uh, in 2002 or whatever, like, you know, it was after college when I was just kind of bumming around, like there was this kind of a band that I would jam with and like, we would rehearse some songs, uh, in their garage, they were called phaser. And I swear to God, like, this is the song that we warmed up to ours fallen souls because we had a guy of course yeah we had a guy who could actually like hit those vocals like very jeff buckley-esque um we played actually several distorted lullaby songs um and that was like fun as shit but like you know we never really taken account of how many times you work hours into (laughs) an episode like jimmy necco if you're out there man like you gotta yeah jimmy necco hit up ian he is (laughs) waving the flag for hours because you you just find a way to like like worm an hours reference. I don't find a way. Episode. They they worm their they worm their own way in there. So let's go back to Ian's question here about you know is it better to be a musician mm-hmm. to write about music or or is not being a musician does that kind of leave bias at the door? I'm gonna say you know I don't think you have to be a politician to write about politics. No. I don't think you have to be a chef to write about food. I don't think you need to be a musician to write about music. I, what you need to write about music are is two things. One, you need to have opinions that are interesting, insightful, and or entertaining. And two, you need to be able to express it articulately in, mm. in, in some fashion. And I've met musicians who can do that really well. And I've met musicians who can't do that at all. It really is like a different skill set from actually uh, playing music. Uh, I will say, though, that... There's this generation of musician critics that exist on YouTube <laughs> that I've been following recently. The, the the biggest guy is Rick Beato. I don't know if you've I, heard I of that I don't know guy. this person. He's the biggest one. I'm a fan personally of this guy named Pat Finnerty, who uh, actually plays in Strand of Oaks, oh. the, or at least he used to. And what he does in his videos is basically he sits there with a guitar, and he'll like walk through songs and he'll explain how they work and he'll play and uh and he's a funny guy and it, 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 it's his video is really good he has a series called what makes this song stink where he uh, takes terrible songs and he breaks them down and explains exactly like why they're bad uh, like there's a great video on danny california by the Red Hat Chili uh, Peppers. Sold. that's one i would recommend um and i feel like that format is really good for that kind of music criticism where it's a musician breaking things down in a more technical way. Because I think when you write that way, mm. it's really easy to get lost in the weeds, you know, because music writing, it's not for musicians. It's for music fans. Right. You know, and most music writers are music fans first and foremost. So if you're, if you're using technical language or a lot of jargon, I think on paper that can really be indecipherable. But if you have someone in a video doing it, you know, that seems like a really good medium, maybe even more than like the kind of music criticism that we do. We're right. just talking about music. It's more visual to have someone playing guitar. You can actually hear the music and see them play it. So that kind of musician music criticism, I think is really good, actually. Mm-hmm. And I think there's definitely a lane for that. 
Yeah, I mean, I I, it, I had no idea this kind of uh, style of music criticism existed, you know. There's, talking, like, more and more of that. I mean, like, does, does does Pat do, like, a, a subsequent episode of The Adventures of Rain Dance Maggie? I mean, is it... I did one on, like, Train, uh, like, Hey Soul Sister. Well, I can tell you why that song sucks, because it fucking sucks. Oh, like, it, it just sucks, man. <laughs> like, I, I, I think it would did be... Did he have someone, like, kind of walk through the chords or, like, walk through, like, how the song is constructed and comparing it to other songs and, like, a more... <laughs> musical kind of way i just think it's a different kind of thing and it's really interesting like and i feel like i learn stuff yeah from those videos uh as someone who's you know knows a little bit about music theory but you know not not very much do you really need music theory though to explain like why a fucking like you know a band like train making a song called hey soul sister is like objectively terrible i mean may- well, look maybe it, maybe but it but it, but it does you don't need it because obviously like you or i could talk about why it sucks and it could be really entertaining but i but i do think like getting that perspective uh-huh. is interesting and it, it it is it's just like another way to come at it and, and i think the video format uh because you know there's all i mean there's tons of music critics on youtube now i mean people oh, talk yeah. about fantano but there's other ones who also have like pretty big platforms the candle box and, to his pearl jam or whatever and uh <laughs> you know I tend to find that the musicians, musician music critics are the ones I like the most on YouTube because it is something different from what we do. Yeah. And I think that's a good format for it. So yeah, so check out Pat Finnerty. Good videos, entertaining, informative. I like them. Well, let's get into the meat of our episode. And this is very, <laughs> I guess, thick meat. Yeah. Lustrous meat here. It's well the marbled. new Kendrick Lamar. Well marbled. Mm. It's the new Kendrick Lamar album. Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers, double record. Although mm. it's not necessarily the length of a double record. No. It's, it's split up into two nine-song discs. Uh, but I don't think it's any more epic than To Pip a Butterfly. You know, very similar. Would you say, Stephen, that this is his being there? <laughs> yeah, you could say that. <laughs> the fi- the fame and that reference, of course, being that like a double album, quote unquote, that could have fit onto one CD. Right, and that was more about making, I think, a a nod to the vinyl era, you know, and, and wanting right. to do like a XL and Main Street type type record. Uh, but no, we're not going to talk about Wilco now. We're going to talk about Kendrick Lamar. The new record. As we said at the top of the episode, there's been a lot of conversation about this record already. Everyone's been wondering, though, what does IndieCast think about it? And uh, and, and we've waited the appropriate amount of time uh, mm-hmm. to talk about this record. There's no anxiety about rushing yeah. on our part. Um, I guess I'll kick this thing off. You know, I have a lot of respect for Kendrick Lamar, so I want to mm-hmm. give him the benefit of the doubt. I think a lot of people... Uh, like when you read the reviews and there's been like a lot of, I think really good reviews written about this record. I'm really good in terms of like the writing, like insightful writing about this record, but you can really see people bending over backward. I think to, um, either, you know, like I said, give them the benefit of the doubt or feel like, okay, if the the things that maybe aren't landing for me with this record, they're going to land for me in six months. So I guess I'll, I'll give that caveat as well. I respect Kendrick Lamar. So I feel like this record has the potential to grow on me in the future. Having said that, I don't think this record's very good. I I feel like this record has the shape of a profound Mm -hmm. statement. And that goes back to the double record aspect of it. Mm -hmm. But at its core, it strikes me that Kendrick just just does not have much to say beyond... Mm -hmm. Get off my back. That seems to be the message of this record. Uh, that, and I said this earlier. He strikes me as a guy who has let all of the praise that's been heaped on him uh, mm-hmm. over the past you know decade or so. Uh, I feel like that sent him completely into his own head. And and there's a savior complex on this record. There's a sort of like, you know. Like on the last song, Mirrors, you know, saying like, I, you know, I'm sorry I didn't save the world. You know, there's like a sour kind of petulance to this record that is really, uh, it, it makes it difficult to stomach. I have to say too that, and I want to get your take on this, there's songs on here that I think are so cringeworthy that yeah. if, if it came from anyone else, they would 
be crucified by critics. Like the yeah. song "We Cry Together." Yeah, well, is, I mean, there's a lot. There's a long history of that kind of uh, song existing on rap records, and uh, I know, but I mean, okay, so or like uh, or Auntie Diaries, like the the, the yeah. mother's trans aunt. But, that's like pretty cringe, I think. I, yeah, I mean, I just feel like you know there aren't a lot of bangers on this record, and there's also like not a lot of insight to me. I just feel like it doesn't feel like sustenance, and it and it definitely doesn't feel like fun. I mean, am I off base on this? I just feel like this record to me, it's 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 interesting when you just think about like what he's been through and like what it reflects about his state of mind. It it really feels to me almost like a vomiting type record. Like he's vomiting all this out, and maybe his next record will be great because he just needs to get this bile out of his system. I don't. Am I just totally off base here? Because like this record to me, like it it it, it feels kind of repellent at times to me. Well. You know, as far as, like, your first point of, like, you know, respecting Kendrick Lamar's artistry to the nth degree, I mean, like, this is, like, one of the very few artists who, uh, like, every single time they put out anything, it it could be, you know, like, it's, like, album of the year until proven otherwise. There's a very small list of people like that at the moment. Like, I'd say Kendrick's on there, uh, Frank Ocean's on there, Kanye was from late registration to say Life of Pablo, Beyonce's on there, uh, Fiona Apple's on there. And, you know, Kendrick, like his last three albums have like swept like Paz and Jop. They've been number one on Pitchfork. They've been number one on Metacritic. And so, uh, you know, th- proven the ability to shift paradigms and, uh, you know, every single time out. That being said, <laughs> of everyone that I've listed so far, like, I think we talked about this on previous episodes, like, which artist was the most likely to make a total flop album? Uh, the answer to that one was easily Kendrick Lamar. First, because, like, Beyonce may never make a traditional album again. Frank Ocean, like, quality control way too high. With Kendrick, like, rap moves so quickly. Uh, not just the sounds of it, but the politics of it. So no matter how revolutionary you appear at the time, like, you could be, like, kind of old head shit. And so... On past records, like Kendrick's had like a lot of like half baked goofy ideas, like like that uh, uh, on Good Kid, Bad City. It's like based on like Halle Berry or Hallelujah. It's like that is kind of like a smart, dumb sort of thing to say. Or like on To Pimp a Butterfly, like how much a dollar costs. Like what if God was really a homeless man? Like this stuff was on there, and just the overwhelming. Um, you know, profundity of those records allow you to kind of like take it all in one. You, you have to just kind of take it all together. Um, it was hard to nitpick certain incoherent uh, parts of his worldview. Um, and, you know, with Damn, it was presented in a way that was very um, what the world needed, I think, at that time. Like very concise, very uh, in tune with like resistance politics of 2017. And you know, I don't think I would have been very interested if he made another damn. Like, that's not a record I listen to a lot because it's just been so overplayed. But, you know, a part of me always wondered, like, what it would be like to actually have, like, Kendrick Lamar do, uh, you know, a podcast or an interview. Like, something where it's, like, not, comp- not like, really worked over and very, like, market-tested and, you know, just, um, like, unguarded and... This is kind of his podcast album, I guess, where, you know, he's saying things and like in real time, not really sure if he um, has thought this stuff through, which makes it similar to me to Life of Pablo. Um, It feels kind of both overwrought and unfinished. It's like a really steep drop off from the masterpieces that uh, preceded it. And it's a really interesting album to talk about. And as you mentioned, there are songs that I heard one time, and I'm like, I don't need to listen to Die Hard ever again. Uh, I can discuss We Cry Together. I don't. Pro- I probably don't need to listen to that again. If I had it on CD, like, I think of, like, how on the Marshall Mathers EP, like, you know, I would listen to Kim, even though I didn't really, you know, I hated it. Um, you know, it's still part of the experience. And so, um, I'm actually... Like, on, you know, it's like we said in the last episode. It's like, I feel bad for this country, but it's great content. Um, it just, um, 
it, it does more for me as far as making Kendrick Lamar interesting to discuss than another consensus across the board masterpiece. Yeah, I mean, with Kendrick Lamar, the way he's discussed, it really, I mean, there aren't that many people, I think, in recent pop history that you could even liken him to. Like, in a way, he reminds me of, like, how people talked about Bob Dylan in the 60s. Yeah. That he was almost like this oracle or, like, you know, spokesman of a generation. Right. Uh, where... And Bob Dylan reacted to those kind of pressures in his own way mm-hmm. as well, because it's an impossible standard to live up mm-hmm. to. Uh, and again, like you can see how that has infected Kendrick's mind on this record. Well, how could it not? <laughs> well, exactly. Like, but like in some ways he's self-aware about it. In some ways he's not. Like putting a crown of thorns on yourself on the cover of your record, like. Is that a self-aware move or not? I'm not quite sure. Oh, well, it the- is. It's it, but it's. Uh, I think with that, and, and this speaks to another. I would say um, flaw of this record. It's that it's super obvious about the ways it wants to be provocative. Like you know the the crown of thorns, and he's also wearing a gun. Like unfortunately, such you know as with like Dave Chappelle and Jerry Seinfeld and other extremely famous people, like. They're very obsessed with cancel culture. like Exactly. That's another theme of this record. And that's always a red flag. Yeah. When someone is overly fixated on cancel culture. You know, I guess I would have thought that, you know, it's been five years since the last record. You know, he's been out of the public eye for a while. I mean, deliberately. And it is curious to me that he would come back and make that kind of statement. Because it's not as if, like... Like, who is canceling Kendrick Lamar? Like, 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 who is going after him? Uh, you know, in some aggressive kind of way. I mean, again, he is like the most lauded music artist of the last ten years. I mean, I don't think there's anyone even close to him. Well, what I think is that he sees the culture. It's like I, I'm not concerned about myself per se, but like you know, all these other artists who ha- he's seen perhaps I don't know quote unquote canceled and it's like what if they come for me what if I told you what and this is a theme of the record he's like if I told you what I really think then I would be in the same position as these people it's like um what like that Bob Dylan lyric it's like something about something about what I've seen they put me on the guillotine or something like you you gotta help you gotta fucking help me out <laughs> if here, my Steve. thought dreams could be seen they'd probably put my head in a guillotine there it the is. Lyric. Yeah, so I think that's kind of what he's coming. It's all right, Ma. Yeah, so I think that's where he's coming from on this, and um, you know, and ironically or not ironically, saying what he really thinks, and all of a sudden it's like all these things that um, you know, were kind of hiding in plain view on his past records are now like the story. You know, when you don't have like a humble or um, love me or uh, all right to soundtrack whatever is happening at the time yeah i mean i i think it might be time to talk about kendrick in the way that we would talk about a kanye west or billy corgan who i think is on my brain because this is a double record <laughs> but like he's a megalomaniacal pop star like on top of being a you know genius lyricist and he's made some great records he's also like kind of a megalomaniac and i think that is the side that's being exposed on this record and i do agree i think that's interesting yeah. you know but it also is a toxic element on this record that i think makes it hard to get through yeah I mean, I'm just sort of also happy that we can look forward to uh, a year-end list that Kendrick Lamar dropped an album, and it's maybe not necessarily going to be uh, sweeping at all. I mean, by the time, like, the reviews ran from, like, Pitchfork and New York Times and so forth, like, no, like, it was like, yeah, okay, like, 7.6, not a big deal. It, like, barely made a dent, whereas I feel like uh, a few years ago, that would have been, like, two days worth of discourse. Well, and I think Rolling Stone gave it three and a half stars. Yeah, man, they, they're they're coming down hard. They only gave Harry Styles four stars. <laughs> only, it's, did, like, their last, did Harry Styles' last record get five stars? I have no idea. I know it, I was, just, it, was, it was on, like, the 500 greatest albums of all time. Yeah, they, they compared they compared it. Uh, I'm just looking at the capsule on Metacritic. Uh, they compare it in the span of one sentence to Steely Dan, Al Green, and Yola Tango. So, um, yeah, I guess we were wrong with the Prince thing. <laughs> Look, uh, you know, sh- again, shout out to Rolling Stone for, you know, the things they are good at. And, you know, they also have some some goofier tendencies when it comes uh, to pop stars. But, yeah, that that's a new one. 
So, yeah, this record, I think it'll sound different, not in six months, but like when Kendrick puts out another record. I yeah, want to hear even a he year does. from now. Yeah, but, but I think when he puts out his next record, I want to listen to this one again. Because I think that will be an interesting con- context. I, I, I do feel like this record, in a way, it feels like a transitional work to me, mm-hmm. where he's working through some things mm-hmm. on this record. And it's, again, I think it's there's like a lot of toxicity on this record, but maybe he's on the way to making like a much better album after this. I will say that I think Good Kid, Mad City... To Pimp a mm. Butterfly, those are both classics. Yeah. Um, I don't think Damn is in that same category. It feels like a step down from those two. And this mm. is, I think, definitely a step down from Damn for me. Yeah. I just wonder uh, when the next album comes out, like, are, is it going to be like kind of a quasi arcade fire? It's like, oh, Kendrick is back. Like, are people. Um, you know, going to be super stoked to like have him return to the height of his glory, or is it going to be? Yep, culture's passed on. I don't know. It. Uh, I, I'm very interested to see that. I just think that this kind of proves that um, we are definitely not in the same place that we were in 2017 or even 2018 when they put out like you know black the Black Panther soundtrack, which is about as like mainstream crowd pleasing as you could possibly get. Um, yeah, it's uh, uh, I, I, I'm glad this album exists and. You know, if I, I don't know, were in college or something like that, I would probably make a big part of my personality to, like, say, no, actually, this is better than To Pimp a Butterfly. Like, it's it seems like a contrarian's choice, which, you know what, there, there's, a, there's a place for that. Yes, contrarian's choice. This record's a masterpiece. Let's yeah. just declare <laughs> that right now. We'll... we'll, we'll We'll take that stake. We're yeah, we're 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 investing in the futures market of uh, Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers is actually a classic. We are getting it on the ground floor. Uh, it's the board ape of takes. We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? Um, so yeah, this this week uh, I want to talk about a band called Gospel, and the album's called The Loser. I know that's like not very SEO friendly. So um, they're a hardcore band from uh, New York City, and like one of the one of the good and possibly bad things about like being a writer in this realm is that you can. By like one person can kind of over exaggerate the influence or the impact of a band, um, you know, especially if like they existed like fifteen some odd years ago. It's like a cult classic might just mean you know an album that you did you think didn't get enough attention, and all of a sudden it's being repeated. Um, I saw that a little bit with like Gospel's out last album, which came out in two thousand five. Um, it's like a hardcore cult classic, and you know what? It actually it actually kind of is. Um, They've come back to 17 years later with uh, a record that amps up and I'm like, I'm being dead serious here. It's got kind of a seventies prog sort of vibe going on with like the organ sounds and like the harmonized guitars. Um, the, <laughs> I wouldn't even describe this as a hardcore record so much as like comets on fire. If it was produced by Kurt Ballou, which it actually is produced by Kurt Ballou, the guy from converge. Um, and it's, it, it, it is so unique that I can't imagine it ever really, uh, being hyped up. Like, I don't know what audience this is for. Like it's a band who hasn't existed for 17 years. They're hardcore, but they're not like, you know, Jerome's dream or those screamo bands that can come back and like go on tour with Touche Amore or what have you. I don't know if they are touring, but definitely one of the most unique, uh, records that's been put out in recent vintage. I think it's awesome. I also would understand if like I and maybe two other people are the only ones screaming about it in a month. But, you know, if if Comets on Fire and Kurt Ballou mean anything to you, you're going to love this one. So I want to talk about a record called The Last Thing Left. And it's by a band called Say Sumi. This is a four-piece band from South Korea. And uh, they've been around for about a decade. And this is their first album in four years. Mm. And... They really have 
like just this classic indie pop sound. Uh, yeah. And th- their influences just go across the spectrum of what you would expect from an indie pop band. You have some elements of the Velvet Underground, some elements of Mazzy, Mazzy Star, a little bit of Pavement. Really like a lot of the great indie rock records of like the 80s and 90s. You can hear traces of that. When I was listening to this record, it reminded me a lot of the great Scottish band Camera Obscura. If, if, oh, yeah. If any of you out there remember that band, I would say that that, that, that this is South Korea's answer to Camera Obscura. And of course, I've been waiting for South Korea to have an answer to Camera <laughs> <Yeah>. Obscura for <laughs> a long time. Uh, I've heard this band also described as Surf Gaze, which I think describes uh, the sort of bouncy melodicism of this band. Uh, really kind of zippy guitars. They have like... Uh, Again, the vocalist really reminds me of uh, Hope Sandoval from Mazzy mm. Star. She has that kind of uh, quality to her voice, a little bit sad, a little bit melancholy, even when the music is really catchy and and uh, and, and bouncy. But again, I, this just strikes me as a record that is perfectly timed for where we are right now. Again, I know in San Diego, 78 degrees every single day. No, it, you, this is May and this is June. It's like 68. Okay, well, it's actually uh, we have, warmer than in Minnesota right now than yeah, it is in May, gray, June gloom. This is very real. Like, I'm not even being, I'm not even bullshitting you. So I've been enjoying being outside a lot lately. We're in flip-flops and shorts and just enjoying the summertime. All the f- flowers and trees are in bloom. And if that is your reality as well right now, check out this record. It's called The Last Thing Left. The band is Say Sue Me. You're going to love it. It's a perfect soundtrack uh, for the late spring, early summer. I will also say that it kind of, it doesn't fill the void exactly, but when I hear it, it's like, oh yeah, this kind of hits that always pleasure center. Um, I've heard they've got a new album done. Uh, I can't tell you anything more about it, but apparently they're playing new songs on the road. So yeah, the kind of dream pop, surf gaze, like basically if you like pretty indie pop, uh, this is going to... This is going to do something for you. I can definitely see the Always comparison, and I've also heard that Always has an album in the can. We always have to wait like four or five years for Always records, so it's always nice yeah. to have really good bands that can do something <laughs> similar. Uh, and, and and yes, it just give us that pretty indie pop goodness, and that's what this record is, so yeah. definitely check it out. Or if Always has their Mr. Morale and Big Steppers in them, you know, I'd like to hear that too. I would not. I would like another 33-minute <laughs> record from them that, that's perfect and has no bad songs on it. I think that's probably what they're going to deliver. What does uh, always have to say about cancel culture? <laughs> nothing. Hopefully nothing. Uh, that about does it for this episode of IndieCast. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. (laughs) 